Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We now have a start date for Donald Trump's criminal trial in Manhattan. It's right in the heart of primary season. The lead starts right now. The former president just learned he will be back in a New York City courtroom for the Stormy Daniels hush money case. And like I said, he'll be right in the middle of the presidential primary season next year. Trump says he understands he's not allowed to talk about certain parts of the case. Then the charge is now facing a 19 year old accused of driving a U-Haul into the security barrier at the White House inside the truck, according to the Secret Service, duct tape, a backpack and a Nazi flag. Plus, Well, that's going to give him something to tweet about. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis turning to one of the most controversial CEOs in the world to help officially launch his 2024 presidential bid on social media. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to begin today in our Law and Justice Lead. Today, a New York judge gave Donald Trump an official trial date March 25th, 2024, next year in the criminal case related to that hush money payment to porn star and director Stormy Daniels. Now, that will set up what will no doubt be a media spectacle right in the thick of the Republican 2024 presidential primary season. Mr. Trump himself just wrapped up a courtroom appearance by video conference a short while ago. That was his first visit to that court after pleading not guilty last month to 34 counts of falsifying business records. The New York judge also imposed a protective order that would bar Trump and his defense team from sharing evidence from the case with third parties or from revealing evidence on social media. Prosecutors requested today's hearing to ensure Trump is aware of these new rules imposed on him. But the judge also made it clear today he's not imposing a gag order per se on Trump and that the former president does retain the right to use the First Amendment and publicly defend himself as he makes this run for the White House. Let's go straight to CNN's Kara Scannell, who's outside the New York courthouse. Kara, what else did the judge have to say to Trump? Well, Jake, so the judge sets the trial date for March 25th. And as you said, that's right in the middle of the primary season. And the judge warned all sides in, the, in this, including the former president, that they could not make any commitments, personal or professional, during that time period, beginning March 25th and however long this trial takes. So that was a clear message to the former president. Now, the, Trump appeared virtually. He was sitting side by side next to one of his attorneys from Florida, uh, where they appeared in the courtroom. Uh, you know, the judge addressed him. Trump only spoke once when the judge asked him if he he had seen the protective order, the reason why he was there. He said, yes, I have. And then the judge you know, said, I'm not going to go through this line by line. But he made the point to Trump that this was not a gag order. He said, it is not my intention in any way to impede Mr. Trump's ability to campaign for president of the United States. He said Trump is free to deny the charges, free to defend himself against the charges and free to campaign. But what Trump is not free to do is to post any information they've received from prosecutors that could be uh, witness statements, grand jury testimony 
testimony. He's not allowed to post any of that on his social media pages. The judge explained to Trump that if he violates that court order, there are consequences. He said it could be sanctions up to including being held in contempt. Uh, now, that was the, the main thrust of the hearing today. I mean, the setting this trial date uh, was something that people were waiting to see when it would land. And the judge saying it will be the 25th. He's not going to move it. Uh, but the next time Trump will be in court will be in early January. Jake. How is Mr. Trump responding to these restrictions imposed upon him? So it was very interesting. During the hearing, Trump is up on the screen throughout the hearing, but his microphone was on mute. But we could see him visibly react. When the judge said the trial date, he appeared agitated. He was motioning to his attorney. And then at other points during the hearing, he also crossed his arms, was talking to his attorney. But we couldn't hear anything that they were saying because it was on mute. And his lawyer did not express or relay to the court any of the concerns Trump may have been expressing to him. Jake. All right, Kara Scannell outside the New York courthouse. Thanks. Joining us now to discuss, CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed, along with former federal prosecutor and CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Paula, uh, the judge had already issued this order saying to Mr. Trump and his team, you can't talk about the evidence, you can't publicly discuss it. So why force Trump to appear by video conference to, to read him this rule? Well, Jake, this is something prosecutors insisted was necessary because they've said if the former president violates this order, they may proceed trying to prosecute him for contempt. And if they do that, they would need to establish that he had knowledge of what was exactly in this order. They didn't want him to be able to turn around and be like, well, I didn't exactly understand uh, what I was supposed to do according to this order. So it does feel like a little bit of a courtroom theater, but it is necessary to lay the groundwork for potential consequences if he violates this order. Ali, I, I have to say, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with this. Is it unusual to have this kind of limitation placed on a defendant in any way about what he's allowed to say publicly? Well, it is rare, Jake, but it's not unheard of. Ordinarily, any criminal defendant has a right to do really whatever he pleases with the discovery, which is the evidence and the witness statements that prosecutors have to turn over. However, if a judge finds that there's a risk that this person would use those materials to harm somebody, to harm a witness, to harm one of the parties to the case, then the judge can put in restrictions. Now, this case is complicated by two factors. First of all, as the judge recognized, Donald Trump's running for president. He has a First Amendment right to speak, to engage in political speech, our most protected form of speech. On the other hand, Donald Trump is the very rare defendant where millions of people look at and hear his every utterance. And as we've seen, some fraction, some small fraction of people do tend to act based on his words. So the judge is trying to strike a balance here. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting, uh, Paula, because obviously, you know, Donald Trump's not above the law, but he's not below it either. He has a First Amendment right to speak on the same Hand, on, this, on the other hand, as, as Ellie points out, I mean, when he labels somebody an enemy in some way, that person tends to get death threats, uh, not directly ordered by him, but his fans act, a minority of them perhaps, but they act. Um, what First Amendment issues does this create? Well, his lawyers have tried to argue that these are overly restrictive guidelines for him. They've said, quote, that he's being muzzled. And they point not only to his First Amendment right, like you guys were just talking about, but also the fact that he is the leading Republican candidate for the presidency and that as someone in that position, his speech should not be restricted in any way. And I, I've lost count of how many times the former president has brought us into a situation where we are asking a constitutional question that has never been contemplated before in the history of the country. But as the judge noted, this is not a full gag order. It's just there are restrictions that have been placed on the extent to which he can share certain types of information with third parties 
or on social media. And that is because he has a history of not always using uh, his First Amendment responsibly. He attacks prosecutors. He attacks judges. He uh, attacks people who have successfully sued him. So that's how he's come to be in this position. But I'm really curious to see if he will follow this. And if he does not, what exactly prosecutors can really do about it? Ellie, um, it's not difficult to imagine a scenario where some of this evidence comes out in one way or another, leaks or reporting or whatever, and let's say Donald Trump's on a stage doing a debate right before Super Tuesday, which is before the trial. Somebody cites this. Let's say, I'm just imagining this. Chris Christie, you're about to be accused by so-and-so. Donald Trump not allowed to respond to that? Let's say he, he, he responds and breaks this protective order. What, what then? What does the judge do? Yeah, I think that's a really good hypothetical. And that points up sort of the difficulty here when you have someone who has not just an ordinary First Amendment right, but really a heightened First Amendment right, because he's running for office and engaging in political speech, which going back to our founding fathers, they've said that is the most protected form of political speech. If Donald Trump does violate this order, now that he's been warned in writing and verbally in court today, prosecutors can then seek to have him held in contempt, which is usually punishable by fines in a very extreme scenario that we likely will not get to. There can be prison involved. Also, remember, prosecutors always have the ability under New York state law to bring charges for obstruction of justice, for threatening a prosecutor, for threatening a judge. We've not seen those charges before, but if it gets to a certain point, prosecutors can lodge those kind of charges as well. And Paula, special counsel Jack Smith in another it's tough to keep track of all the different cases against Donald Trump. Tell me about it. Um, right, <laughs> even more. Well, you, you're doing the you, yeoman's work or yeoman's work. Uh, here, look, at we have a healthy graphic there, a helpful graphic there. Um, Jack Smith uh, in the uh, classified documents, so that's uh, on the top row, the second one, has obtained <laughs> dozens of pages of notes from Trump's attorney, Evan Corcoran, uh, uh, memorializing conversations he had with Trump in that case how was the special counsel able to obtain these? I mean, again, I mean, isn't that attorney-client privilege? Doesn't Donald Trump have the same rights that we would have? He does, and he did, but there are exceptions to attorney-client privilege, and this is one of many examples where the special counsel has been very aggressive in going to court and trying to get around, be it executive privilege or, in this case, attorney-client privilege. He was able to convince a court that he believes that this attorney, Evan Corcoran's advice, may have been used in furtherance of a crime. So that crime fraud exception, that is one way to get around attorney-client privilege and how Jack Smith now has access to these, what I am told are very detailed, perhaps even, quote, overly detailed notes describing conversations he had with his client at a very critical point in this investigation last spring when the Trump team received that DOJ subpoena asking for the return of classified documents. Now, he did ask, the former president did ask his attorney, how can we fight this? Uh, What options do we have? Some people have suggested to me that, well, look, that's what anyone would ask their attorney. But again, special counsel Jack Smith appears to think there could be something more nefarious. And he was able to convince a court of that to at least get access to this evidence. We'll see what he does with it. Fascinating. Paula Reed, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Coming up, as the United States careens toward an economic catastrophe, a self-inflicted one, we have some brand new poll numbers showing what the majority of you good people, the American people, think lawmakers should do to avoid that fate. Then the deadly cocktail of illegal drugs that is becoming sadly more popular as some cities and counties try to tackle the crisis by giving people a safe space to use fentanyl. Plus, is King James abdicating his throne after a disappointing playoffs run? LeBron James hints he may be ready to retire his crown. 
In our money lead, the mission to avoid what would be the first ever devastating U.S. debt default. Well, it's not going well. That's how Republican negotiators are describing talks today anyway, as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy suggests the GOP is unwilling to make any further concessions in their talks with the White House. And time is running out. Officials warn that the nation could default in early June, perhaps as soon as June 1st. The main sticking point right now between McCarthy and President Biden continues to center on spending cuts. McCarthy at one point today saying a deal is, quote, always possible. Americans are sending a clear message to lawmakers about the debt ceiling in a brand new CNN poll. CNN political director David Chalian is at our magic wall to break it down for us. David, what do people think Congress should be doing about this crisis, the debt ceiling? Well, Jake, our brand new poll conducted by SSRS shows that a majority of Americans, six in 10 Americans, want to raise the debt ceiling only if spending cuts are included as well. So this is the McCarthy point that he's been making all along. Remember, months ago, the White House was in this position of no negotiations. A majority of Americans say, no, you should reduce spending as well as raise the debt ceiling. 24% say raise the debt ceiling no matter what. Only 15% say do not raise it. Let the U.S. go into default. And when you look at this question about what Congress should do, look at it by party, Jake. Overwhelmingly, you see here Republicans, 79%, say raise it only if there are spending cuts included as a part of the overall deal. That's near unified position for the Republicans. The Democrats are split here. 45% say make sure spending cuts are part of the deal. 46% say raise it no matter what. So Joe Biden is dealing with a more fractured, divided party on this particular topic about what to do in conjunction with the debt ceiling. And David, you point out that another concern is outpacing the threat of default. Tell us about that. Jake, this is why going forward from this moment is going to be so difficult, both for President Biden and the Democratic leaders and Speaker McCarthy. Take a look here. Three quarters of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents, 73%, say that their bigger concern in the scenario is that their partisan leaders negotiating the deal are going to give up too much. Only 26% say the failure to compromise is the larger concern and avoiding default. It is identical on the Republican side. Three quarters of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents feel giving up too much is the bigger concern. So when they have to go back and sell a compromise, if one does come to be, it's going to be very difficult to convince their fellow partisans to get on board with the deal. And, And more generally, what do Americans think about how President Biden is handling the overall economy? So his overall approval on the handling of the economy is not great. 34% of Americans approve, 66% disapprove. Take a look at his overall job approval. It's a little better than on the economy, but still low. 40% approval, 60% disapproval. And Jake, take a look at that presidential approval rating matched up against his modern era predecessors at this point in their presidency. Joe Biden's 40% where he is now is down here between Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump. Of course, they were just one-term presidents. He's hoping for a Reagan-esque turnaround. Oh, boy. David Chalian, thanks so much. Here to discuss, Stacey Abrams, former Democratic candidate for governor in Georgia, founder of Fair Fight Action, and also, and the reason she's here, the author of a brand new thriller, a very exciting book. I've read it, Rogue Justice. It's the second book in a political thriller series, though, of course, you've written many, many books under a pseudonym, I believe, right? So eight under a pseudonym and four as me. Yeah, this is really good. I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> I do have some news questions first, of course. Um, Let's discuss these new poll numbers. Uh, President Biden's approval rating at 40 percent, disapproval 60 percent. It's a downward trend. Only 34 percent approve of his handling of the economy. I mean, 
Can he win re-election with those numbers? Absolutely. We are in a deeply polarized moment in our politics. And I think despite the low numbers, what we also know is that he has delivered historic investments. He has made impossible so many things that people are taking for granted. And the part uh, that he will play in the campaign is sharing that information, letting people know what has been done and juxtaposing it with whomever becomes a Republican nominee and what they will do. So um, Donald Trump's going to next month speak at the Georgia Republican Party convention. That's his first event in Georgia since announcing uh, his reelection campaign. Of course, Governor Kemp and other key officials uh, might want to steer the party away from him. I don't know. Uh, The state GOP is still behind him, even though obviously what Trump has done in Georgia is very controversial. Uh, he was against Brian Kemp's re-election. He was against uh, Raffensperger's re-election, the Secretary of State, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think Trump has a chance to win Georgia back uh, into the Republican column, uh, despite everything he's done in Georgia? I think it's going to be a very hotly contested election. We saw in our last two cycles that Georgia is a purple state, and that means that candidates have to work hard. Uh, the atmospherics matter. But we know that Joe Biden has delivered for the state of Georgia. There are new jobs coming into our state that are credited to the national investment that's being made in green energy, the investments that are being made in infrastructure. And when Biden comes to Georgia to talk about that, when President Biden points out what he has delivered, I think he prevails. Uh, Let's talk about your book. So you've written four bestsellers in this new novel, Rogue Justice, out today, the second in the series of legal thrillers. It's about a Supreme Court clerk. Her name is Avery Keene. She is a great character. Uh, in this book, I don't, no spoilers, but um, it, I mean, you plunge right into the action, which is an interesting choice. Um, uh, it, it deals with an impeached president or the impeachment of a president. Uh, uh, FBI, questions about the FBI, what they're doing, uh, the U.S. court system, the legitimacy of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, obviously, these are themes <laughs> that are kind of out there. Um, how did you come up with the idea of doing it? Well, I will anchor it in the fact that the my predecessor novel, when Avery makes her first appearance, was written in 2010. And so I anticipated a number of these issues. I did not expect a reality to catch up with my fiction. Uh, But what happens a lot. It it does. (laughs) If you watch Veep, it seems very quaint these days. (laughs) Indeed. But what I wanted to do with the second novel was introduce Avery to the consequences. In the first book, it was really about trying to prevent calamity. And now she's got to deal with the fallout. Sometimes you win and sometimes what you win isn't what you expected. And so she has to grapple with not only the political travails, but the challenges that are facing our secret court, the FISA court. She's got to deal with the challenges of having a mother who is going through her own internal dynamics. And Avery has to figure out who she wants to be in this new world order that she's helped create. Yeah, her mom's a recovering addict. It's a fascinating uh, subplot. I have a lot of questions for you. I'm doing a book event with you in Chicago, and I will ask most of my writerly questions there. But there is one, and again, this is not, this is early in the book, so it's not a spoiler, but you have a deep fake uh, subplot there, a little little moment. Um, So realistic that it forces one character to take a, a drastic action, at least contributes to the drastic action. How far are we, do you think, from a deep fake having a major effect on our real life? Like, or are we there? We, we are already there. Unfortunately, we saw examples of that yesterday. Oh, with that uh, fake Pentagon bombing photo. Exactly. Yeah. And the issue is, do we anticipate the challenges? We can't predict what will happen and we can't stop it from occurring. But what we can do is prepare people for what is to be. And that's part of the joy of writing Avery. 
I investigate things like what does it mean if the FISA court is being blackmailed? What does it mean to think about our, our energy grid? What does cybersecurity look like in the 21st century? Not because it's likely, but because it's possible. It is possible. Absolutely. And, and what I want us to think about is what would we do? How would we grapple with it? And I want you to have fun. I want you to be a little afraid and a little excited, but by the end, I want you to feel like you know a little bit more and have good questions. To ask. Well, it is interesting because the whole idea of the FISA court, and that's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance, Surveillance Act court, which is a very important court that judges whether or not law enforcement can get can basically wiretap somebody outside the country who might be talking to people inside exactly. uh, the country. And, I mean, frankly, it's very possible what you lay out here, the idea that these individuals who are just random judges could be blackmailed. Yeah. I mean, the FISA court judges are not subject to having their opinions made public, which means they can be making decisions and an intrepid uh, citizen who wants to sort of track what's happening has no way to know what's going on. Congress can ask for information, but the FISA court is fairly, fairly cloaked in, in secrecy. And as we deal with questions of ethics and available information and disinformation, I want to think about what does it mean that we have a court that's literally charged with protecting us from foreign actors when we can't know what they're doing or how they're getting it done. It's a great, it's a great thriller. Highly recommended. It's out today. Rogue Justice by Stacey Abrams. And I will see you in Chicago. And we're going to have a great conversation there. Check it out. Thank you so much. Good to see you, as always. Thank you. New details about the 19-year-old who allegedly crashed a U-Haul into security barriers near the White House. There was a Nazi flag in that U-Haul. That's next. We're back with our national lead in the federal investigation now underway after a driver shockingly crashed a U-Haul into a security barrier near the White House. U.S. Park Police say the 19-year-old suspect is facing charges of threatening to kill or harm a president, vice president, or family member. A source tells CNN that the suspect had a Nazi flag with him in the U-Haul. CNN's Brian Todd is taking a closer look at the investigation. In law enforcement custody, the alleged driver of this 26-foot U-Haul truck that rammed into the security barriers at the park across from the White House. He told law enforcement he wanted to kidnap and harm President Biden, law enforcement sources tell CNN. The suspect is identified as Cy Varshith Kandula from Testerfield, Missouri, 19 years old, who graduated from high school last year. He faces charges that include threatening to kill or harm a president, vice president, or family member, and assault with a dangerous weapon. That's a pretty violent act all by itself. Clearly, this individual uh, intended some kind of harm by ramming that, uh, that truck through those pylons. Authorities appear to have recovered a black backpack and a roll of duct tape at the scene, and a swastika flag, which a law enforcement source tells CNN he had on him when he exited the vehicle. The flag alone is not a threat, but it is an indication of the mindset of the person who is behind the wheel. But so far, the motive is not clear. Investigators are going to key in, was he motivated by some sort of ideological group? And in worst case, was he directed to launch this type of attack? It's too early to tell right now. The U-Haul was rented in the suburbs of D.C., a company source says, and there were no red flags against the driver that would prevent him from renting. An eyewitness says the driver rammed into the barrier more than once. He tried the first time and then went to the second time. A bomb squad was seen at the site, but a law enforcement source tells CNN no explosives were found. Still, the Hay Adams Hotel across the street was briefly evacuated. We have to assume that the back of that truck was full of explosives. Luckily, it wasn't, but the assumption had to be that it was. The location? Outside Lafayette Park, across the street from the White House. 
How much danger was the president in? Where this occurred uh, was quite some distance actually from White House property. At no time was the president or first lady in any danger. CNN spoke to two former classmates of the suspect. They both described Sai Varshith Kandula as a quiet young man who kept to himself and never got in any trouble. Sources are telling CNN that authorities are now considering what role mental health may have played in this episode. Uh, Kandula is expected to make an initial court appearance here at U.S. District Court tomorrow. Jake? All right, Brian Todd, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. Also with us, Amy Spitalnik, uh, the CEO of the Jewish Council of Public Affairs. John, let me start with you. What are investigators doing right now to figure out the suspect's motive? Right now, they're going backwards. Uh, they're going to retrace his steps. How did he get to Washington, D.C.? Uh, did he fly into Dulles and go to Herndon and rent that truck in Virginia? Uh, where was he before that? They think it may have been Memphis, tracing his roots back to Missouri. What about foreign travel? He has trips back and forth to India. His latest trip was from Dubai. They're going to look at all of that. Uh, but right now they're zeroing in on what appear to be mental health issues. Uh, when you look at a guy who says in his interview with Park Police and Secret Service protective intelligence agents uh, that he had a plan to kidnap the president, that he wanted to do harm to President Biden, uh, but he shows up with a van uh, that is searched to contain no explosives, no knives, no guns. Um, the plan seems to be more in his head. So you've got that bifurcated process of going back through his entire history, uh, but also looking at what's going on with him. And Amy, earlier today you tweeted, uh, lots to still learn, but the usual suspects are already claiming that the White House U-Haul attack is a false flag or that the driver couldn't possibly have been motivated by white supremacy because his name doesn't sound white. We've since learned that he's obviously not white. We have a photograph of him. You don't have to be white to be a white supremacist, you wrote. So it's an interesting area that we're in now because we've seen a number of individuals who are clearly Latino, uh, or at least of Latino heritage, who are white supremacists. Uh, Nick Fuentes, uh, you had the individual shooter in Texas. Explain this. Well, that's exactly right. We have seen a wave of white supremacist attacks and white supremacist leaders who are not white but are clearly motivated by white supremacist and neo-Nazi ideology. Enric Tarrio, the leader of the Proud Boys, right. the shooter in Allen, Texas, Nick Fuentes, as you mentioned. And while some of these people might uh, be of Hispanic origin and identify as white, we also know that there are many not uh, non-white people who are part of the white supremacist movement. And while it's not a huge amount, we see how that their existence in the movement is oftentimes used by white supremacists to then distract and deflect from their actual white supremacy. And we're seeing that in this moment with some on the far right claiming that this is a false flag operation and that because this attacker is not white, um, but there was a swastika found in the van, right. um, somehow it can't possibly be motivated by extremism. A lot to learn, but we shouldn't simply rule out white supremacy as a potential motivation because the attacker isn't white. Um, John, how has law enforcement training and preparedness changed to combat the, this threat of extremism, uh, including white supremacy extremism? Well, as that uh, the active shooter component to this has really been the game changer, which is you've seen um, domestic extremists, white supremacists, racially motivated violent extremists gravitate um, less towards the complex plots involving the large bombs that we saw from Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City, um, but much more to this 
give me a large body count um, and a couple of weapons and a manifesto, this active shooter thing, Texas being the latest example. But um, as my colleague just said, you know, you look at Mauricio Garcia, if you look at the chats going on inside the white supremacist world, um, here was a guy who was very active in those chats, posting Nazi stuff, communicating with white supremacists overseas, who is being rejected by a virulent white supremacist group as not being white enough. Uh, so, you know, you see um, confusion in a group that uh, uh, recruits outsiders who are bent on violence and just need a label. Uh, and Amy, you testified on, on Capitol Hill last week. You had some heated exchanges with Republicans. You said violent extremism disproportionately comes from the right, including and especially white supremacists. Um, do you think Congress has a true understanding of what the threat looks like of white supremacists' extremism. Obviously, people can believe whatever they want to believe, but it's the acting that's the, that's the real problem, uh, and, and how to combat it. Look, there are absolutely members of Congress who do understand this threat, but based on what I saw on the Hill last week, it seems that the vast majority uh, are simply not grasping how serious this threat is in this moment. And it's serious not just because every extremist murder in 2022 was committed by a right-wing extremist, including and especially white supremacists, it's also serious because we're seeing elected leaders, politicians, pundits normalize the very same white supremacist conspiracy theories that then fuel mass shootings and other acts of mass violence, like the Great Replacement Theory, which fueled the Charlottesville attack, the Pittsburgh attack, the El Paso attack, the Buffalo attack. And so as those conspiracy theories are normalized and mainstreamed in our politics, it gives license to the violent extremists. And while there's still a lot to learn about today's attack, we know that it's happening in this broader environment where we're seeing skyrocketing numbers of violent extremist attacks in this country. And again, in terms of the murders, the extremely violent events, they're disproportionately coming from the right. All right, John Miller and Amy Spitalnik, thank you so much. Appreciate your expertise. Coming up, wrongfully detained American journalist Evan Grishkovich makes an appearance in a Russian courtroom, the disappointing but not surprising decision from the Russian judge. Now to our health lead, a tragic consequence of the COVID pandemic. New data from the CDC shows that drug overdoses surged. And 2022 marked the deadliest year yet for drug overdoses in the United States. The main culprit, culprit remains opioids and the lethal synthetic drug fentanyl. Nearly 110,000 Americans died last year from overdoses. And fentanyl is behind nearly two-thirds, two-thirds of those lives lost. Sadly, new numbers out today show that fentanyl is being combined with other drugs to make a deadly cocktail. Overdoses involving methamphetamines more than doubled in 2021 compared to 2019. Doubled in just two years. Here to discuss, Colleen Daly and Doy, Executive Director of Project Weber Renew, a Rhode Island-based recovery-focused organization. Colleen, thanks for joining us. So you're on the front lines of this crisis. Do these numbers reflect the suffering that you see every day in Rhode Island? Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me, Jake. Um, yes, absolutely. These numbers are are what we are seeing on the streets every single day. Um, we're seeing preventable overdose deaths. Um, and in Rhode Island in 2021, 435 people died. And um, and last year it was it was the numbers were higher. So absolutely. This is what we're seeing. And we recognize that there needs to be um, an opportunity for new um, new tools in our toolbox to to reduce overdose deaths. So one of the questions I have about fentanyl is, are people 
who are overdosing on fentanyl, are they, are they trying to get fentanyl and use fentanyl or are they using other drugs and the drug dealers or manufacturers, um, not legitimate manufacturers, obviously, putting fentanyl into the drug? Because we've been covering this crisis and um, former Congressman Deutsch, his nephew died. He took a, an herbal supplement, completely legal, and there was fentanyl in that. Um, what are you seeing in terms of fentanyl deaths? We're absolutely seeing both. So we're seeing both people who are using fentanyl knowingly, and we are seeing people who are using other substances that are contaminated with fentanyl um, and who are dying um, because they don't know what, what, is in, what is in the drugs that they are taking. So your clinic is trying a different approach. You provide a safe space for people to use drugs in a controlled uh, in environment. Uh, needless to say, it's a controversial approach. Why do you think it can work? So right now we don't provide this service, but um, we are going to be opening in um, early 2024. Um, but the, the service is really um, intended to save lives. And that's the most important um, feature of any of this. Um, so any of these kind of um, initiatives is really to save lives. So we recognize um, that people, um, that recovery is a, is a process and that recovery is oftentimes a cyclical process. And so we want to give people um, the opportunity um, to stay alive so that one day they are able to, um, to access recovery if they choose. So Pennsylvania and Colorado recently uh, moved uh, to make those efforts illegal, the idea of a, a safe place to, to do an, an illegal activity to make sure that their lives are not lost. There's obviously a lot of a shame attached to drug use, stigma, especially when you combine it with mental health issues. Um, how, how difficult is it to deal with the shame and stigma while also trying to save lives uh, in this drug epidemic and this overdose epidemic? It's huge. I mean, it's it's a huge issue. And I think it's something that um, for our staff, certainly um, many of whom are in recovery themselves, um, the ways that they really um, are giving back to their community. So the ways that um, we engage with folks who are currently using and our staff are often people who have experienced overdoses themselves. So they're using um, their own life experiences and their own stories to really overcome that stigma and overcome that shame and um, and show the world that, you know, there's there's other ways to address overdoses and that we can really um, do something new um, and, and something that's, um, you know, been proven all over the world. Colleen Daly and Doy, thank you so much for your time and thank you for what you do. Thank you so much. Is the king stepping down? LeBron James dropped some hints about his future on the court. In our sports lead is the king abdicating the throne. Future Hall of Famer LeBron James appears to be considering retirement after two decades in the NBA. James's comments come after his... Los Angeles Lakers' hopes of reaching the NBA Finals vanished last night, being knocked out of the playoffs by the Denver Nuggets. CNN's Coy Wire reports on speculation over whether the 38-year-old has any more left to give. I a lot to think about, to be honest. And um, just for me personally, going, going forward with the game of basketball, got a lot to think about. After 20 years in the NBA, could LeBron James be leaving the game for good? He hinted at the possibility after the Lakers were swept out of the Western Conference Finals by the Denver Nuggets. I like to say it's a successful year because I don't play for anything besides winning championships at this point in my career. And um, 
you know, I don't, I don't, I don't get a kick out of making a conference appearance. I've done it a lot. LeBron surpassed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to become the NBA's all-time leading scorer earlier this season, and he put up 40 points last night at 38 years old. I think 20 years from now, we're going to be talking about what he's doing at 58 years old. I mean, what he's doing at 38, most guys would give their right arm for one season like that in the prime of their career. He's been absolutely amazing. While retirement speculation swirls, just two weeks ago, LeBron repeated that his goal is to play in the NBA with his older son, Bronny James. Bronny committing to playing college basketball next season at the University of Southern California. He's eligible to enter the NBA draft in 2024, the year his father will turn 40. I'm still serious about it. Obviously, dude, you know, I got to continue to keep my body and my mind fresh. I think my mind, most importantly, um, if my mind go, then my body would just be like, okay, what are we doing? LeBron has won it all four times. He's been to the finals 10 times. That's more than 27 of the 30 NBA teams. Last September, he signed a two-year contract extension worth almost $100 million. I think he's serious about wanting at least to try to play with his son. So I think he'll hang on for a little while longer. He's still playing at a really high level. I guess I reflect on my career when I'm, when I'm done. Um, but I, I don't know. Now, Jake, uh, Lakers general manager Rob Palenka said just a bit ago that he hasn't spoken to LeBron yet, but he said, quote, LeBron has given as much to the game of basketball as anyone who's ever played, and when you do that, you earn the right to decide whether you are going to give more. Now, the way he looked last night, he might not be done for years, Jake. He played all but four seconds of that game, and his 31 points in the first half were as more points than any half in his playoff career, which consists of more than 280 playoff games. That equates to about three and a half entire NBA seasons, Jake. It's legendary stuff. Yeah, I don't, my personal gut says he's not going anywhere. I'm sure he was upset last night, but come on. Coy Wire, thanks so much. Appreciate okay. it. The announcement in the 2024 race that has a lot of people all uh, Twitter, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis turning to Elon Musk to launch his presidential bid. That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the warning from the nation's top doctor that every parent in America will want to hear about kids and the dangers of social media. Plus, a setback for the American journalist being wrongfully detained in Russia while the world was unable to see what really happened in court today there. And leading this hour, fire up the tweets. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will officially announce his 2024 presidential run tomorrow night during an event on Twitter with CEO Elon Musk. It's part of what sources say is the DeSantis team's unconventional approach to his 2024 bid. And sure enough, Donald Trump's team has already taken notice and is reportedly preparing a counterattack ahead of tomorrow night's announcement. CNN's Jessica Dean joins us live from Miami ahead of a DeSantis donor retreat. Jessica, most candidates announce their campaigns during a speech, a rally. Why Twitter? It's an interesting question, Jake, and it's a one so many people are asking right now. Officially, DeSantis's people and his team not saying exactly why they chose this. But I will tell you, if you talk to, the, to those people who work with him, uh, they really believe that he is an unconventional candidate. They, as you mentioned, want this unconventional campaign that really matches up with him. They want to reach people in different ways and go about this very differently. So clearly, this is one way to get attention and to do something quite different 
right out of the gate. So what we know is that he will sit down with Elon Musk tomorrow and talk through some of this. Elon Musk confirming that at a Wall Street Journal event earlier today, but stopping short of endorsing him in any way or saying that he has plans to endorse. So all eyes will turn to that. They will also turn here to Miami, Jake, where he is going to gather his donors uh, to talk to them about his presidential bid and really try to uh, maximize this moment. Again, going back to what his team wants, they want to really go on the offensive. They want a big blitz coming out of this announcement. So they want a lot of media attention. They also want a lot of money. They want to really have a strong showing with millions and millions of dollars right out of the gate. So you can bet that that's what they're going to be leaning on their donors to do, to really bundle up that money and then move toward the next phase of this campaign. And, and Jessica, so the, the event in Twitter spaces is 6 p.m. Eastern tomorrow, I believe. What is DeSantis going to do after that? Right. So after that, we look ahead to next week. And you mentioned that a lot of candidates mostly announce with a big formal announcement in a speech, uh, maybe in their hometown. We are expecting that that will be the case in the week to follow, that we will see a more traditional speech uh, in person from him with a crowd perhaps in his hometown here in Florida, that he will do that. And then we are expecting him to really hit the campaign trail hard. Again, this is a place where his team thinks he can really differentiate himself from especially two key rivals, President Biden and former President Donald Trump. They're both, of course, much older than Governor DeSantis. That's where they think they can really... contrast the younger governor with them, that he can be out and about, moving around, uh, really going at a quick, fast pace. And we expect to see a lot of that in the weeks to come, Jake. All right, Jessica Dean in Miami, thanks so much. Here to discuss CNN Chief National Affairs Correspondent Jeff Zeleny and Ryan Mack, technology reporter for The New York Times. Jeff, let me start with you. Um, what do you make uh, of, of, of Governor DeSantis doing this with, with Elon Musk, who is Obviously, a controversial figure who has leaned heavily into culture wars himself, has been boosting and tweeting some really fringe elements on Twitter. In a way, it's uh, somewhat of a perfect marriage. I mean, the reality is Elon Musk, as he's been taking over Twitter, he's been looking for uh, the exact kind of audience that uh, watched at Tucker Carlson that supported uh, Governor DeSantis. So I'm not sure it's much of a risk for the uh, DeSantis uh, team. Everything that they've done is carefully scripted. We're told this is likely to be scripted uh, tomorrow evening as well. Yes, they may take questions. It'll be an audio format. But uh, this is not designed to uh, set the governor up or be a game of a gotcha in any respect. It's designed to elevate him. So we will see how it goes. But I think that uh, you know the most important part is not the announcement tomorrow on Twitter. It is what uh, his announcement does for the race. And the Trump team is aggressively waiting for him. So that is what the big sort of moment is for Ron DeSantis. It's not Elon Musk. It's Donald Trump. Yeah, but you, you, you pointed something out. Twitter spaces is, is audio only. That's unusual. I mean, you could do video. And he'll be doing a Fox interview in the hour afterwards. So it's oh, okay. a perfect opportunity to clean up. He'll be doing a, a Trey Gowdy interview uh, tomorrow evening. So it's a, a one-two hit for okay. the governor. Trey Gowdy, former Republican congressman. Right. Um, Ryan, since Musk took over Twitter, the company's obviously been plagued. I think it's fair to say, by a lot of PR problems and some technical problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you surprised that Elon Musk is now wading into the presidential waters? Well, you know, it, it, the presidential campaign is is a great opportunity for Twitter to kind of show that it's back in the game. I mean, obviously, there's the company's taken a lot of hits under his ownership. Like he himself has, you know, marked the valuation of the company down from $44 billion to $20 billion. Um, is what he's valuing the company at now. 
And it's been hit with, you know, advertisers leaving the, the, the platform, multiple outages. So, you know, he's seeing this as an opportunity to perhaps, you know, bring people back to gain uh, interest in, in Twitter again. And, you know, this is, this is that opportunity for him. Yeah, I can see that. And, and Jeff Musk says he voted for Joe Biden in 2020. But in a recent interview, I think it was CNBC, I might be wrong. Uh, he said, I wish we could just have a normal human being as president, um, do you think this signals that he is essentially, uh, maybe I'm going too far here, but essentially endorsing Ron DeSantis? He says, I wish we could have a normal human being for president, didn't vote for Trump, and then kind of like welcomes Ron DeSantis in. He's certainly showing what his interest is, but he said today at a Wall Street Journal event he has no plans of endorsing tomorrow at this event. But look, he's clearly moving beyond uh, Joe Biden. And Elon Musk is not the same Elon Musk he was back in the 2020 campaign, he's, uh, you know, uh, changed his platform dramatically. He's been at odds with the Biden administration over uh, several things, even though uh, his uh, Tesla car company is going to benefit, I mean, from some of these electric vehicle things, et cetera. But he seems to uh, be concerned about the age, as Jessica was saying earlier, of these two candidates, a Trump versus Biden campaign. So, look, I think it'll be interesting to see if he holds other forums with other presidential candidates. But this is the first one. He, of course, is doing, but he says he's not going to endorse at all. We'll see where it goes from here. It's, um, you know, tipping his uh, thumb on the scale, I guess, a little bit here. But I think, again, it's a friendly forum for Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, what kind of role do you see Twitter playing in 2024? Um, Do you think that that Musk and DeSantis and this alliance, whatever it is, could force Trump back onto the platform? Obviously, uh, Elon Musk unbanned. Trump, but Trump's got his own social media site, uh, Truth right. Social. Do you think this will beckon him back in a way? I think it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, you know, Elon would probably love for Trump to be back on the platform. You know, he's obviously unblocked him. The account is just sitting there waiting for Trump to tweet again. I don't know. I, I also see this potentially could make Trump more resistant to come back to the platform. You know, his now main competitor is going to do this Twitter space. It seems like, you know, in some ways he is marking that territory for himself and maybe he doesn't want to come back and, and fight that battle there. Um, but yeah, it remains to be seen. And, and, uh, and Jeff, we can't ignore the fact that uh, Ron DeSantis has emerged uh, as really taking on some very controversial positions, a, a six-week abortion ban, which, which is, I mean, six weeks is before a lot of women even know they're pregnant, right. uh, really targeting uh, the trans community in a very, very aggressive way, uh, uh, you know, getting uh, a lot of African-Americans very upset uh, with the way he treated the AP course, et cetera. Um, he's really leaned into the culture wars. He has. And that's what he believes his calling card will be in these Republican primary states like Iowa, like South Carolina. The bigger question for him is he talks about electability a lot. What has all of this done uh, for his electability down the road, should he become the Republican nominee? That's very, very much an open question. He said on a donor uh, call last week, as reported in the New York Times, that it's Trump, Biden, or me. Uh, that is not necessarily clear that he um, is as strong in a general election, but he must win that primary first. And you can tell when I travel to Iowa, other conservative states, these Republican primary voters like what they've seen in Florida. He calls it the Florida blueprint. But that is about to get uh, you know, uh, inspected much more carefully He's about to face something he has never done. He's a very confident man. Yeah. Running for president, as you know, we've covered so many campaigns. It's an entirely different ballgame starting tomorrow. So we'll see how much that blueprint actually holds up 
as he travels around from state to state. Yeah, and I also just think that there's a question about whether or not those positions, which will indubitably help him in a Republican primary, uh, could hurt him in a general. Look uh, at the midterms of 18 and 22. These yeah. suburban voters are the ones he needs, Republicans need to win the White House. Exactly. Jeff Zeleny, Ryan Mack, thanks so much. Russians allegedly attacking Russians inside Russia just over the Ukrainian border, and now a top Ukrainian official's weighing in. Then, the horrific moment a four-year-old was dropped over the fence at the U.S.-Mexico border, and gunshots are fired as Border Patrol agents try to help the child. Stay with us. In our world lead, a Russian court has ordered Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich be held in jail for another three months. Gershkovich, who has been designated by the U.S. State Department as wrongfully Detained, was arrested in late March while on a reporting trip in central Russia. CNN's Matthew Chance joins us live. Matthew, reporters were barred from from today's hearing. Um, It appears Russia is going to drag this farce out as long as possible. Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, quite. The uh, FSB, who are leading the prosecution uh, in this uh, this case, it's an espionage case, they asked for a three-month extension to Evan Gershkovich's um, pre-trial detention. Uh, and that was granted, it seems, you know, very quickly uh, by the court in central Moscow. Um, and that's been condemned by, you know, roundly, first of all, by the Wall Street Journal, the, uh, the, the newspaper that employs uh, Evan Gershkovich. They said they're deeply disappointed with that having taken place. The State Department in the US uh, calling for Mr. Gershkovich's um, immediate release. John Kirby, of the U.S. National Security Council also said he shouldn't have been detained in the first place. Uh, The courtroom was essentially closed. Journalists weren't allowed in, you're right. The parents of Evan Gershkovich were there, uh, as were representatives of the U.S. diplomats from the the embassy in Moscow. But it's not clear they were actually allowed in in the courtroom. They went into the courthouse, but it's not clear they were able to actually go into the courtroom where Evan Gershkovich himself appeared in in front of the judge. And so... Yeah, I mean, very procedural, uh, but it seems that Evan Gershkovich is now uh, having to sit in Moscow even longer uh, before his trial even begins. And, and of course, efforts are being made by the U.S. government to try and look for creative ways uh, to try and uh, work out how uh, Gershkovich can be can be swapped along with his fellow American, Paul Whelan, is also being held in Russia for espionage. Matthew Chance, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Also on our world lead, Russia today claimed Its forces liquidated an incursion into its territory around the city of Belgorod. Russia is blaming Ukraine, but as CNN's Fred Plekin reports for us now, the invaders actually appear to be separatist Russian forces who oppose Vladimir Putin and are allied with Ukraine. The Russian military allegedly fighting back. The defense ministry showing video of what it says are strikes against fighters who allegedly crossed the border from Ukraine. The remaining nationalists were thrown out to the territory of Ukraine where they were shelled until they were fully liquidated. The fighters are anti-Putin Russians, calling themselves the Russian Volunteer Corps and the Freedom for Russia Legion. Still, the Kremlin says it holds Ukraine responsible for the incursion. But in an exclusive interview with CNN, Ukraine's national security advisor brushed off those claims. There is a part of Russians who are on the side of light and who went to deal with the darkness that exists in Russia now. What are the questions to us? I don't understand at all. 
Russia claims Ukraine ordered the raid to distract from the situation in Bakhmut, where Moscow now claims its forces control all of the city that has essentially been reduced to rubble, as these aerial views show. But the National Security Advisor insists Ukrainian forces still hold part of the town and that the decision to stand and fight, despite overwhelming numbers of Russians, was right. It was our strategic defense operation which was successful for us given that we held the territory for 10 months where we were destroying them every day. Forcing the Russians into a battle of attrition here allowed Ukraine to prepare for a massive counter-offensive he says could begin any time. We are clearly aware of when, where, how and what should start. The final decision is up to the president and the security staff. When the decision is made, Russia will definitely feel it. Greetings from Bakhmut, a graffiti in one of the videos from the cross-border raid into Russia reads, and the Kremlin already using the incident to try and justify Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Putin himself portraying Moscow as the victim. We are often told that Russia has started some kind of war. No. Russia, with a special military operation, is trying to stop this war being waged against us. But clearly not all Russians agree. The groups who say they're behind the cross-border attacks are vowing to battle on defending Ukraine. And Jake, I also asked the National Security Advisor whether he now fears that there could be some big retaliation coming from the Russians after this humiliation of this cross-border raid, like, for instance, some sort of large missile attack by the Russians once again. He said, look, the Russians have already hit us with more than 1,400 missiles already. How much worse can it get, Jake? Yeah. Fred Pleitkin in Kiev, thank you so much. With us now, Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan. She's a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. What are you hearing uh, about this incursion into Russia by anti-Putin Russian fighters from Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, look, we're still trying to get ground truth on it, but it's a pretty momentous thing to happen if the reports are true, that it's from a group that's, you know, um, disaffected Russians um, against Putin. I mean, it's not something I've ever seen in my time as a national security person for the past 20 years. Um, and I just think it shows like how weak um, Putin is becoming. If these things are popping up, he can't stop them. And now he's playing the victim card. That's pretty amazing. So the situation in eastern Ukraine does seem rather tenuous. There's fighting in and around the city of Bakhmut. We're waiting for a major Ukrainian counteroffensive against the Russians. How long do you think Ukraine can afford to wait before launching a, a momentous counteroffensive? Well, I don't know. I think the frame needs to just be reflected here. The, the, this is the Russian army who took months and months to take a city that's smaller than Lansing, Michigan. They've destroyed it in the meantime. There's no civilians barely there living there anymore. So this great victory that they're touting to me is is just actually a reflection of their weakness, that they have to celebrate uh, you know, this, this liberation after all these years. They've lost, by our estimates, 100,000 people. Um, and I've seen like how it's changed what they can do even along their own borders. I was in Norway in December, and the border guards in, the, in Norway were saying, look, there used to be all these border guards on the Russian side, but now they've all been sent to fight in Ukraine, and they haven't come back. So I don't think it's some amazing victory. I actually think it reflects the weakness that they have to celebrate this particular victory. What does Ukraine, do you think, need to accomplish in a, let's say, summer offensive to assure continued support by the West? Yeah, I mean, look, I think we've done 
a lot of work to support the Ukrainians with um, material, with um, military support. We can't keep doing that in perpetuity for 10 years, 20 years. So we really need to aid their fight this summer to punch Putin a few times in the mouth, change the status quo, help them with the summer offensive, make sure they have the amount of weapons they need, the type of weapons they need, so that it changes the status quo. I think that's what we're all aiming for, is Zelensky and the Ukrainians feel like things have changed, they have an upper hand, and they can call the shots on a negotiation or a conversation after that. But it all happens by having some serious military victories this summer, so time is of the essence. Over the weekend, the Biden administration, President Biden, uh, reversed himself and said he's going to allow allies to send Ukraine F-16 fighter jets. Uh, Of course, the Ukrainians have been asking for this for a long time. Why does it seem as though President Biden always has to be dragged, kicking and screaming to these decisions? It's It's a criticism I've heard from not only Republicans, but Democrats. Yeah, I mean, look, I was part of a bipartisan group that has been writing to the president and encouraging him to allow this training. Um, We know that the Ukrainians take to this training. We had some leaks over the weekend um, that uh, show that Ukrainians take like four months to get trained up on these weapons or on these uh, airframes. And that we know we have allies from NATO who are ready to supply F-16s and similar platforms. Um, I, I, I can't speak. All I can say is if you're the president of the United States, you do have a responsibility to, to minimize escalation. And the president does not want American sons and daughters getting pulled into a war. So I understand the instinct. I think for me, given how far Putin has gone, given what he's done, um, the dynamic has changed. He is not capable of escalation beyond what he's done. We've seen that. And so we want to make sure that we're giving, again, the Ukrainians an advantage this summer. So I support what's been done. Um, You know, look, we've developed a process here in Washington where pressure um, does help get us to the right place. But the president does have a responsibility to always be measured about dragging us into a conflict. All right. Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin from Michigan. Thanks so much. Good to see you again. Thank you. Horror at the southern border as a small child is dropped over a fence and the agents who rushed to help were caught in the middle of gunfire. Plus, we're talking to the Republican and Democratic congresswomen who are pushing a new bipartisan immigration reform bill. Working together. Wow. That's next. In our national lead, a shocking moment captured on surveillance video. A four-year-old boy was dropped over a border wall in San Diego, California last week. Gunshots were reportedly fired from the Mexican side of the border as agents tried to help the boy. A helicopter even had to provide cover. Border officials say, thankfully, the child is doing okay. Both the U.S. and Mexico are investigating how this happened and who might be responsible. We've covered this for a long time now. And time and time again, immigration reform has proven to be A third rail of American politics. Uh, Democratic and Republican administrations repeatedly have tried and failed to enact meaningful reform to what is universally agreed to be a broken system. But I bring good news. A bipartisan duo of Hispanic women are looking to break that trend by introducing what's called the Dignity Act. Overview here. It would provide billions of dollars for additional border security. It would create pathways to citizenship for some of the undocumented immigrants who are already in the U.S., It would change the legal immigration process, and it would establish special zones on the border where asylum claims would be processed within two months. And joining us now for an exclusive bipartisan interview are the co-authors of that legislation, Democratic Congresswoman Veronica Escobar of Texas and Republican Congresswoman Maria Salazar of Florida. First of all, let me just say thank you. 
Thank you for working bipartisan. Thank you for, for doing this. More of this, please. More of yeah. this, please. Yes. Congresswoman Escobar, let me start with you. Why do you believe this legislation will succeed when, when so many other attempts have failed? Jake, this legislation addresses the challenges that we're facing today in a really smart, strategic, common sense way. It represents true compromise. Neither side is getting everything that they want. Um, And it is, frankly, what the American people want. Also, I think it's important for us to maintain hope and optimism because we, we passed an historic infrastructure bill in the last Congress. We took action on guns in the last Congress, on uh, chips and science innovation. We can do this, and we have to do this. Congresswoman Salazar, first of all, welcome to the lead. I hope it's the first of many visits. Um, creating pathways uh, for citizenship for undocumented migrants who are already in the U.S. It's, been, it's something that many Republicans have been historically unwilling to support. Why do you think you can get uh, more of your colleagues on on board with that provision? Uh, That's a great question. And thank you for welcoming me because we are creating the dignity path, the dignity status. And that status is basically you could be there for seven years. If you're undocumented, you've been here for more than five years and do not have a criminal record. Then we give you the dignity status, come out of the shadows. One of the things that I want to tell the public is that most uh, undocumented do not necessarily want the path to citizenship. That is something that we have been hearing around. But no, I think that if you give them dignity, they are very happy. And then after that, if they do really want to create, they want to become American citizens, then they go into the redemption path. So we're talking about almost 15 years before you become an American. I, we are Hispanics. I was on television. I served those undocumented. And I know that they, do, they would rather live a dignified life in the promised land than wait for the path to citizenship that never comes. Congresswoman Escobar, your legislation would create what you're calling humanitarian campuses on the border. This is where individuals who are seeking asylum can go, and they would have two months uh, to get uh, some sort of resolution. Walk us through how this would work. What is happening today on the border, and frankly, in communities far away from the border, communities like New York, Chicago, other communities, is we are having NGOs and local governments assume what is a federal responsibility uh, in sheltering migrants, uh, offering humanitarian care. That really should be uh, under a a federal, uh, under the auspices of the federal government. And so during these 60 days, while someone's asylum claim is adjudicated, families stay together, NGOs are allowed on site. In fact, we will need NGOs on site. It will be a civilian workforce allowing Border Patrol to get back to their job and their uh, functions and responsibilities. And at the same time, while yes, we are shortening the time for the adjudication process, we are doing something that does not exist today, which is um, allowing for legal representation. We have a creative way that we're addressing that in the bill, but due process will happen during these 60 days Let in a way that does not Let me just add to that. Happen. We stop catch and release. That's what we're doing. You're stopping catch 60, and release. You're, you're stop, you don't gain the system anymore. 
Right. And, you know, the we, asylum I, system has been gamed by millions of people for 35 years. It's time to stop it. You go to a humanitarian campus. We're going to treat you well in a very humanitarian way, like my colleague would love to. And then we're, you're going to, we're going to say yes, no, or maybe to you in 60 days. No and, more giving you a seven years and we'll never find you again. Yeah, you know, and, that's what's happening. Yeah. And, and one of the things we've heard from, we had the mayor of Denver on uh, last week, I believe. And he was, he was saying, as you were just saying, Congresswoman Escobar, this is a federal responsibility, and yet it's the cities uh, and the and the and the mayors uh, and the counties out there, not just in the in in Texas, but all over the country, that are being forced to deal with this issue, uh, and they're very frustrated with the well, it's the Biden administration now, but it, you know it, the same situation existed before. Congresswoman Salazar, because the federal yeah. system, yeah. I mean, because you know the Biden administration. And I'm not going to be bipartisan here because this has been a 35-year problem right. that Republicans and Democrats have, have uh, committed. Uh, they, they have not been able to solve it. So now we're coming together to see if we can open the Red Sea because we understand that this is very difficult. But we do have hope that because the border is the way it is, it's time for both parties to come together and do not what's perfect, but something that is good enough. And what we're saying is that we're going to give you, we're going to stop catch and release. We're going to seal the border. We're going to create all the, te- put the, all the technology that it's out there. I don't care whether it's a barrier, a levee, uh, a tower, a drone, an infrared camera. We're not experts, but we do know that the border needs to be sealed. Uh, uh, I, I would disagree with the term sealed. Okay, so sealed <laughs> it is, is not the better verb. Managed. And then it's secured. Secure <laughs> the border. Don't stop catch and release. And then yeah. bring out of the shadows those millions of people that are doing jobs that no one else wants to do. Let's treat them with dignity, not citizenship necessarily at the beginning. And you know, we know that we are going to be able to create a, 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 a millions of jobs for the economic, for the business sector. Yeah. Because you know very well that right now the business sector is dying to yes. enhance. And there's a huge Where labor the, shortage. Huge yeah. labor shortage. So then this is, a, 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 this is an economic bill. Yeah. More than anything else. Congresswoman, so, tell me. Congresswoman Maria Salazar, come back. Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, come back. Uh, separate together. And, and we love the, the attempt to work across the aisle. It's what the American that's what, people that's need. That's what we're here for. Yes. So why, why are we doing why are we doing the whole exactly. of Congress? Let, exactly. Let's work for the American people. Love not it. for Democrats or for Republicans. Love it. Thank you. Thank you Thanks, so much, Jake. guys. Good to see both of you. Coming up, a sharp warning from America's top doctor about how much access kids and teens should have to social media. That story's next. The U.S. Surgeon General today warned that social media can have a, quote, profound risk on the mental health of your children. And he is putting the pressure on lawmakers and big tech companies to actually try to do something to protect kids. Here's CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz. A new warning from the highest level, a youth mental health crisis unfolding before our eyes. Social media can pose a profound risk of harm to the mental health and well-being of children and adolescents. That's according to a 25-page advisory from the U.S. Surgeon General. Earlier this year, Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy warned of the unfair matchup. You're pitting a child against the world's greatest product designers, and that's just not a fair fight. Nearly every U.S. teenager is on social media. Up to 95% of kids ages 13 to 17 report using social media, with more than a third using it all the time. 
Kids must typically be 13 to register on social media apps, but nearly 40% of children ages 8 to 12 use it anyway. I think that it's a time, you know, early adolescence where kids are developing their identity, their sense of self, and the skewed and often distorted environment of social media often does a disservice to many of those children. The advisory concluded, we do not yet have enough evidence to determine if social media is sufficiently safe for children and adolescents, calling for more research. But it did cite studies which found increased risk of anxiety and depression, poor sleep, online harassment, and low self-esteem. The time I spent looking at all these attractive people doing amazing things in amazing places, getting disappointed by my own life is never something I want to be doing, especially when I have the power to change it, but I just wasn't because I was spending hours on this app. Some experts say TikTok has the stickiest and most addicting algorithm, keeping people on the app longer. Last year, TikTok users spent an hour and a half per day on the app on average, more than any other social media platform. This as Montana becomes the first state to ban the social media app on all devices, prompting TikTok to sue. I don't want to speak for all parents. I think it's very important that parents make their individual decisions with their, with their children. But for me personally, I'm very comfortable with my children getting more involved with uh, understanding technology at an early age. TikTok, Snapchat, and Instagram have parental controls that can monitor teens' screen time and content. But experts say the oversight should begin at home. It's important when possible for parents and caregivers to really model how they would like their children to utilize social media. And the report goes on to give parents tips about how to keep their children safe against social media, like creating tech-free zones in the home. The Surgeon General also calling out legislators, calling on them to do more, like creating higher standards for data privacy for children. And Jake, there is about a half a page dedicated to the benefits of social media, connectivity, community, support, and self-expression. But the other 24 and a half pages, Jake, dedicated to the threats that social media is having on the mental health and well-being of children and teens. Jake. Vanessa, you're okay, but it's a great report. Thank you so much. And uh, be sure to tune in. U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Morthy is going to be interviewed uh, by my bestie, Aaron Burnett. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Do not miss it. Joining us now is Andrea Bonnier. She is a clinical psychologist. She's, she's the Leeds in-house mm-hmm. clinical psychologist. She's been helping us uh, talking to our viewers throughout COVID, and now you're here to talk about uh, the effects of social media. The Surgeon General wants lawmakers of big tech to take action, protect kids from the harmful effects. Um, parents can't wait for Congress and yeah. big tech to take action. People watching at home right now, parents, caregivers, what should they do? I think we have to start small. I think as a parent myself, it feels so overwhelming. It feels like the ship has already sailed, that it's so impossible to set limits with our kids because of what their friends are doing and what the schools expect. Oh, you got to have a smartphone for this app. I think we have to start small and say we can make small changes. Okay, no phones at dinner. Okay, you're not going to sleep with your phone in your room. Okay, we're going to have a two-hour period at night where everybody is screen-free. And we've got to practice what we preach as well because our kids are looking at our own behavior. Yeah, I'm the worst. Yeah, I'm yeah. the absolute worst. But it's for work. It's for work. <laughs> it's it's different. It's different. It's true. And I always try to tell my kids, hey, this is why I know it's so hard. Yeah. Because you see how I struggle with it as well. We're in this together. But it's particularly hard for young brains to be taking all this in. So um, what do you tell a kid who says that social media is making them feel worse about themselves, either because of body image or whatever, whatever the reasons are, but they can't 
wean themselves from it. They just can't because they feel left out. Yeah, I think it's really important that we validate that, that we say it's kind of designed to make you compare yourself, to make you feel like you're missing out. So if you feel worse, that's normal. That actually means that things probably are working right with you. So let's take some concrete steps. Let's say, make it a goal just tomorrow that after dinner, when you do your homework, you're going to keep your, your, um, you're going to keep your screen aside. Or you could get them to observe themselves even more. So not just, I feel worse, but why? Because not all on-screen behavior is created equal, right? So we really need to get these kids thinking about what they notice. Okay, when I do this online, it makes me feel maybe more connected. But when I do this or I follow this person or I'm exposed to this account, it makes me feel more lonely and more stressed. So get them to observe. And then again, it's about those small concrete steps. They can make a difference if they're sustainable. Dr. Bonnier, it's always great to have you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And good to see you in person. Yes. We started this relationship uh, during COVID. It was all through screens. Now you're here. You actually exist. You're not AI. It's good to see. (laughs) I'm not AI. And a reminder that if you or someone you care about need help, need to talk, it is available. Text or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. That's 988. There is help for you. There is hope for you. There is love for you. Coming up, will the city of brotherly love get its first woman mayor? We're going to talk to the Democratic candidate who defied the odds and is now poised to make history in the greatest city in the world. Stay with us. In our politics lead, former Philadelphia City Councilwoman Sherelle Parker won the Democratic nomination to be the 100th mayor of the city of brotherly love. That was one week ago today, defying what many thought would be a very close race and putting her on track to become the city's first woman mayor. She joins us live for her first national interview since winning the Democratic primary. Uh, congratulations, Ms. Parker. Uh, it, it's a, it was a, it was, I read a lot about the race and a lot of people thought a lot of other candidates were going to get there, and it wasn't really even particularly close. Well, listen, I'm excited to be here, Jake, because this is my first appearance and I was not able to celebrate with many of my supporters on election night. I had a dental emergency picture that one. I want to say that together we did it, Philadelphia, and uh, I'm excited to be here. Winning the nomination, the Democratic nomination in a city that's like seven to one Democrats, means you're very likely to be elected mayor. Um, Why do you think you were able to win decisively in this crowded field against uh, candidates that were better funded, more progressive, et cetera? Well, Jake, I'll I'll tell you, I really leaned heavily into my real life lived experience. And uh, people often heard me state that my lived experience is closest to the people who are feeling the most pain in our city, the most pain of gun violence and neighborhood blight and struggling schools and lack of opportunity. Uh, But now, Jake, with our win uh, in me, these communities are now closest to the power. Well, as you know, uh, better than I, um, crime is a real issue in Philly. Uh, And you talked about it a lot uh, on the campaign trail. Um, And you've you've actually been compared to New York City Mayor Eric Adams in some ways. Um, Do you think politically that you and Mayor Adams are giving Democrats a a, a blueprint on how to talk about crime, an issue that a lot of Democrats have been criticized for, for playing defense on? 
Well, Jake, listen, I'll let the nation be the judge of that. What I can tell you is that I was adamant about not allowing anyone to put me in an ideological box relative to what I believed was the prescription that we needed to employ to ensure that Philadelphia was the safest, cleanest, and greenest big city in the nation. And the reason why we were able to do that is because our message was developed from the ground up. You know, I, it, it wasn't, you know, I know what's best for use people policy making. It was the people saying we deserve to have police accountability, but we also want a proactive law enforcement presence in our community where the people who are sworn to protect and serve us get to know us. And they are not there uh, simply in response to a 911 call. They wanted a comprehensive approach. And that's the message that we delivered. You've, an expre- you've expressed an openness uh, to the controversial policing tactic uh, called stop and frisk. Uh, critics say it allows police to target minorities. It, it doesn't work. Um, why are you willing to consider it? Let me first, Jake, state for the record that Philadelphia is not legally allowed to engage in unconstitutional stop and frisk. I am the author of the legislation that formally and officially gave Philadelphians a voice in that issue. What I do support are called Terry stops. It means that law enforcement must know that a crime has been committed, will be committed, or is actively taking place, and they must have just calls and reasonable suspicion in order uh, to stop someone. Listen, I am a black woman who's lived my my life at the intersection of, of race and gender. I am a working mother, working single mother to a 10-year-old black boy. We will never go back to the days where law enforcement thinks that they could just stop me or a black man randomly just because of our race and our ethnicity. We will have zero tolerance for any misuse and or abuse of authority by law enforcement, but we will make sure that our police department has every tool necessary to make our public safety our number one priority. Well, congratulations on your victory. Hard fought. Uh, and if you do win, uh, maybe I'll talk to you before then, but, but if you do win, please take care of my sweet Sweet city, Philadelphia. Uh, it's such a special place. Philadelphia hey, Jake, Mayor. listen, you, yeah. have to, you have to come back. Come back, Jake. I was just and, there a couple weekends ago. My mom's we, there. You, <laughs> I'm there all the time. I'll, I'll, and I'll see you there in person. Uh, Democratic mayoral candidate, Sherelle Parker, thank you so much and congratulations again. Coming up, Ford won't kill the radio star after all. We'll explain next. But first, here's CNN's Wolf Blitzer with what's next in the Situation Room. Wolf. Jake, we're following some major developments right now out of Russia and Ukraine. I'll ask the former CIA director and defense secretary, Leon Panetta, about Moscow's latest claim that its fighter jets intercepted two U.S. military aircraft approaching the Russian border. All of this comes amid attacks on Russian soil, which are causing a lot of anger and confusion inside the Kremlin. Local officials are blaming Ukraine, but anti-Putin Russian nationals are taking credit for the latest incursion. All of that much more coming up right at the top of the hour, right here in the Situation Room. From Sherelle Parker to Joel Embiid, everyone in Philly knows that jingle. It's an AM jingle. And now that sound will still be available in new Ford vehicles. Ford is going to keep AM radio in its 2023 Mustang Mach-E and F-150 Lightning Electric pickups. Earlier, 
the car maker said it was going to drop AM radio because it interferes with its electric vehicles and because data showed fewer than 5% of Ford drivers listens to AM. But a bipartisan group of lawmakers proposed the AM for Every Vehicle Act, mandating that car manufacturers include AM radio in new cars at no extra cost because AM radio is vital to public safety. Well, KYW News Radio sure is. I'll say that. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky. If you have an invite in the TikTok, AJ Tapper, you can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the situation. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.